Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a founder that has been through it so many times that it's just even hard to keep count. I think that we're going to be really learning a lot. We're going to be learning a lot about survival, too, in real life and then also in business. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Neil Murphy. Welcome to the show. Hey, Alessandro. It's great to be here. Thank you. So born in Northern Ireland in the 60s. How was life growing up there? And tell us about moving around the world. No, so I've, I've had a pretty interesting time as a bit of a global citizen. So I was born in the, in the late 60s in, in Northern Ireland, which at that time was a pretty troubled part of the world. And then in the 70s, my, my parents moved down to South Africa. So um, obviously, I was a young child at that time. And I ended up having my formative years in school and university and so on in, in South Africa, which at, at that time was also going through a significant transition. Yeah, I mean, you graduated in the 90s. And obviously, you were involved with all the the new policies that were coming out, and even meeting Nelson Mandela. So how was uh, that meeting with Nelson Mandela? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, he's one of those people that is just a different type of human being. So I, I did some work for him and along with many other people in supporting uh, formulation of new policies for the, what would become the democratic government in 1994 in South Africa and managed to write a speech for him and so on, which was a great, great privilege. Yeah, sort of awe-inspiring as a, as a human. So what would you say was your lesson from being exposed to Nelson Mandela and, and a leader of that caliber? Well, I think it puts any sense of personal adversity that I've ever had into, into context. And his ability, his humility and pragmatism and willingness to talk to anybody on a down-to-earth basis, given what he'd been through, makes any, anything that I face kind of seem fairly trivial. Got it. So obviously, you know, you did this for a little bit after graduating, but then you went at it as an entrepreneur and to launch your first business. I mean, what was the trigger? I mean, did you have anyone in your family that was an entrepreneur or, or how did you all of a sudden, you know, decide that it was your time to shine as a founder? Yeah, well, I was trained as a computer scientist, but my, my father is an entrepreneur. He's a publisher. And when we'd moved to South Africa, actually, he'd started his own publishing business. So I guess I grew up with a bit of that bug. So in 1994, 
the internet was was becoming a thing. So I launched one of the first internet service providers in, in Africa, did a joint venture with the US telco Sprint, and we started providing dial-up and leaseline internet access off a, off a whole 768 kilobits of bandwidth that we uh, thought was a lot, of, a lot of capacity at that time. Yeah, no kidding. So what ended up happening with the business? It, it built out reasonably well, both in South Africa and in Zimbabwe. And, uh, and then that business was acquired by um, UUNet. I'm really showing my age now. In, the, in, in 98, yeah, I made some money. So uh, successful outing as, as the first batting. And what's the difference, for example, with operating maybe like a business in, a, let's say, in a region that has that uncertainty that maybe like the, the, the politics are not as stable as in places like maybe like Geneva, where you're now? What was some of that uh, added, you know, hurdles to the, to the journey? Well, on the one hand, you know, it's a very greenfield environment. You aren't pushing up against an incumbent. On the other hand, yeah, there's there's very few rules of the road, and and so we had to we had to make things up, and and we had to identify whole different issues that 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 we that there were no established policies. So, for example, had to negotiate an IP address block for for Africa in Washington D.C. and explain that that Africa was a kind of larger location than Wisconsin, and we would need probably a few more IP addresses and things like that. So, yeah. Basically, just lifting the lid on uh, on on a lot of uncertainties, but that's great fun. So, your next business after this one that was Digital Thinking Network, uh, and here one thing that you really, really, really understood was how to think about the future or think towards the future, and then thinking backwards. Can you tell us about this a little bit? Yes. So, actually, during the early '90s, when I was involved in some of the some of the political work, we we were trying to postulate future scenarios and we we had some some involvement from some international consulting organizations on this and I really got interested in future thinking so I co-founded the digital thinking network with a, with a good friend of mine Daniel Erasmus he still runs it out of Amsterdam and what we did is we we built future scenarios and and that what a future scenario does is gives you possible plausible futures driven perhaps around a particular space. And I found that exercise allowed me to get a, a pretty firm perspective about what might happen. And, 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 and if you put yourself in a future state, then you can, you can think backwards, as you said, to today. What, what action should I take today if that's going to be the, the, the potential outcome uh, that we would see in the world? My next major project, a business I launched in, in the UK in, in 2003 with, a, with another business partner, in the mobile internet, a, a Wi-Fi company called The Cloud, that came out of a scenario project that, that I did in, in 2001, actually, about the future of the mobile internet and, and identifying really that Wi-Fi technology would play a, a, play a meaningful role. So we took that debt and invested in, uh, in that area. So then in this case, so what was, the, what was really the, the next move here after Digital Thinking Network? So, so the next move was the foundation of the cloud, and and what the cloud did was to build out Wi-Fi hotspots. So, what we sort of take for granted today, having Wi-Fi access in a bar or a restaurant or a, a hotel, you know, we we pioneered that. In fact, back in 2003, we cut a deal to build 3,000 hotspots across the UK, which was globally an unprecedented amount of Wi-Fi coverage. We did that with a whole bunch of pub groups and sort of springboarded the UK into being the, the number one player in the world in terms of, of Wi-Fi access and um, worked in partnership with Intel on, on that initiative. And, 
that business then ended up growing into a, a pan-European uh, public Wi-Fi operator. And this was obviously your first uh, real exposure to uh, the venture hyper-growth type of path. I mean, you, you raise money as well from people like Axel. So how was that first exposure to, to that hyper-growth VC type of environment? Yeah, so Excel and uh, and 3i were the co-lead and investors on that business in in 2004, and it was a you know, it was a whole new experience to learn to work with um, with venture investors and learn pretty quickly the uh, the expectation and the and the accountability that you have towards the structured and institutional investors and also the appetite for for growth that uh, that was. Expected and 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 obviously that we had the, the the empowerment to be able to drive a lot of learning, a lot of learning in that in that uh, in that first instance. I, I'm I'm always amazed. Yeah, I think yeah. Well, they say the definition of an entrepreneur is somebody who has no idea what they're getting into, but knows how to get out of it. And I and I think that um, that as we went into that that uh, certainly for me, we went into that experience with uh, with uh, first really serious venture uh, play. I, I certainly had no idea what I was getting into, but but managed to make a success of it. Very cool. And obviously here you also saw the full cycle of um of a hyper growth company. The company was acquired in a deal that was eight to nine figures. So so what did you really get from from that type of experience and and how this did did this deal come about? Well we built the business organically through to 2007. Actually did a pretty cool deal with Apple when the iPhone was launched. Uh, so we actually we pre-provisioned every every iPhone one to uh, to automatically work with our uh, our Wi-Fi network across the whole of Europe. And then, the, obviously, the financial crisis happened in in 2008, and we were actually in a reasonable position of strength. So at that point, we did a whole bunch of acquisitions. I think all in all, we did about 10 acquisitions, and uh, we're able to leap forward the scale of the of the business on a on a on a, a pan European basis. And by by the time we got to kind of 2009 2010, Wi-Fi had become a sort of standard part of the environment. And so. At that point, the decision was really whether it was going to go up to the next mega level of scale, or or, or whether an exit would happen. And and as it happened, uh, you know, Sky uh, B Sky B came along and uh, wanted to wanted to acquire the business. And so, you know, for a variety of reasons, that was uh, that was the right thing to do for that business at that time, so that it could play at the next level. And in your case, you have a secret weapon. And that, Nial, is that you are a mountaineer. I mean, you've, exposed, you've been exposed not only to, to life-threatening uh, uh, events in real life, obviously in business, but I guess in real life, I'm sure that you've learned a lot as to how to apply them to business as well. So, so tell us maybe like one of those events where you thought that, that prob- probably that moment was going to be the end or could be the end. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I, I kind of like climbing mountains that I've, I mean, the highest I've been above the surface of the earth is about 7,000 meters down in the Andes mountains. But I, I, I guess I had a formative experience in the Alps on, on Mont Blanc, you know, uh, gee, almost 10 years ago now. I, I, I fell and, and, uh, and I literally started sliding down ice on the mountain towards a cliff edge. And I went through my head that I was going to go over the edge of that, that cliff. And by some miracle of, ice axes and various other you know bits of luck i ended up with my feet hanging over the edge of the cliff but you know me not going over the edge of it and uh so it kind of puts everything into perspective (laughs) wow 
Uh, absolutely. I mean, and I guess dealing with that uncertainty and, you know, because it's also kind of like a marathon getting up to the to the peak, you know, whatever mountain you're you're climbing. I mean, how, how do you think that you've been able to apply that to business and to building companies? Well, you know, there's a, a fantastic expression in uh, uh, Swahili that says polo polo, which means one foot at a time, one foot at a time. If you climb uh, Kilimanjaro, you, you know, the guides will tell you that. And, and I think that that's that patience. If you keep, you know, putting one foot in front of the other, you will get to the top. I think that patience is, is a really important philosophy. And also, you know, I think secondly, when you're in, you know, we're in a storm or you're in a, a crisis situation is, is um, it doesn't help to panic. It's, it's important to remain calm, look at the tools that you have at your, your disposal, you know, be, be pragmatic. And I always like to say the only, uh, the only way forward is upward. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And those panic situations are always on the menu if you're building a startup. So, so that's good stuff. So thank you for that, Neil. So, so obviously in your case, after the acquisition of the cloud, uh, basically, you started doing some angel investing before you went at it again, you know, with your most recent company. But I want to ask you here, when you were doing some angel investing and perhaps seeing other founders and maybe learning from their own journeys, what were some of the things that, that you were able to recognize? Maybe there was some pattern recognition there that you developed on on really being able to differentiate what makes great execution and what, what makes a execution that is destined for failure. You know, this this is obviously a much said thing, but it's it's all about the people, right? And uh, if you if you have an ability to create a great team, that is the biggest precursor to success. So you know, I've seen people with great products that 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 just couldn't put a great team together to to exploit that product capability, or people that have got a great team, and then we're hunting around for for uh, for a product and and the latter is is much more likely to be successful in my in my experience and i found that i i wasn't a great angel investor i i found it very difficult to you know to be involved in a number of different projects and not be the person that was um you know in control or or sort of driving the initiative myself so after doing that for a little bit i i uh, I, I decided to focus on uh, on one key idea that i wanted to develop myself so then let's talk about that. How did you come across the idea of everything and, and what was that process of bringing it to life like? So, you know, it was another um, scenario project really is, is looking at the Internet of Things, but, you know, how connectivity was, was coming to everyday objects. And I, the thought experiment that I did is that uh, if you follow the trajectory of, of, of uh, silicon technology and, and sensory technologies, we would... We would get to a world where every physical thing made would be connected to the internet and in one form or another. And if that was the case, then uh, what would that mean? You know, what kind of information uh, environment would that create? So I got fascinated with the idea that just like we've got social networks of human beings like you know, Facebook or, or LinkedIn, where would be the, um, the graph of, of physical things? You know, why can't you Google a pair of shoes, right? Literally, the physical pair of shoes on a shelf in a in a store, and that if everything did connect, get connected to the internet, that would become possible. So that 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 sort of future world kind of fascinated me, and I and I, so then I got focused on on how physical things would be digitally identified on the web, and and that's that's what led to the foundation of everything, and the reason the business is called everything is is that we felt that everything would be connected. 
So I, I hunted around the world. I, I found two Swiss computer scientists who, at the time, were um, at, at MIT at the at the Auto ID Lab at MIT, and had developed something called the Web of Things. This is back in uh, in 2011. And so, uh, long story short, I kind of um, cut a deal with them to bring bring them on board and and the the work that they'd done with the Web of Things, and and that led to the the formation of, of everything. And so we had a a, a point of view about uh, technology and and the, the digital identity on the web of, of physical things as being the basis of, of our intellectual property, but the problem we really went about solving was um, how we would uh, help the the companies that make and sell things, the, the consumer brands of the world, predominantly know where where all their stuff it was at any at any point in time. So then, how did you go about building the team here? Well, so. In the, this project, we were able to bootstrap with with uh, venture capital investment from the get-go. So Atomico um, were one of the first investors in the company. And with my partner, Dom Gunnard, um, who's now is my co-founder and, and CTO, and a couple of other partners, Andy Hobsbawm and Vlad Trifo, that, that's what formed the initial, the initial team. We were able to recruit some great engineers um, in, um, in Switzerland and Eastern Europe. And... and and then went looking for a pioneer customer and found one in the form of uh, Diageo, the, um, the the drinks manufacturer, and did an initial project in in 2012 that kind of proved the the the, the value of, um, of of the technology that we were um, uh, we were building and did a couple of other projects, but that led us to a place where we could do a Series A investment round in in 2014. So for the people that are listening to really get it, what, what ended up being the business model of everything? How do you guys make money? Everything uh, makes money by uh, providing digital identity for products. So we manage the, uh, the, the digital identity of each individual product that a manufacturer makes. So for example, we uh, track every Mouille Chandon champagne bottle around the world, or we, um, we, we, we track every Ralph Lauren uh, polo shirt uh, around the world, and we earn revenue for managing the digital identity of each one of those items. It's a, it's a platform as a service business. You could think of it as a business model very similar to, to Salesforce.com, uh, as in those manufacturers are subscribing to the everything product cloud platform. But instead of managing CRM records like a Salesforce uh, business does, we manage the digital identity of individual products. So so going back then to the to the actual fundraising, I mean, obviously, this was your your not your first time really going at it and raising money from from outside capital. I mean, what, what were you looking at some of those investors that 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 you really wanted to be involved on something like this? Well, aside from capital, we we also wanted um, reach, relationship reach, and in in founding everything as a European entrepreneur, I guess I'd call myself a European entrepreneur now. One of the things we recognised is that our target customers, the global consumer product brands, about sixty percent of those companies are headquartered in North America, so. What we needed to do if we were going to be successful was to have some foundational investors in, in North America out the gates. What we would not be able to do would be to successfully build this business in Europe and then some years later kind of get into the American market. We'd probably lose the, uh, lose the window. 
so we found uh, some some super angel investors in North America initially who who both were able to bring capital and great uh, network access. And later on, we added a Silicon Valley based venture fund, Sway Ventures, as a as a key investor in the in the business, and some other corporate investors. Cisco, uh, for example, became a, a strategic investor in the companies. But all of that is about how to build the right network of um, of relationship reach and uh, ecosystem insights, as as well as getting capital. And how much money have you guys raised to date? So total, we've raised about sixty million dollars to date. Understood. And and just so that so that we get an idea, you know, on how big everything is today. I mean, anything that you can share in terms of numbers of employees or anything else? Yeah, so we're about 70 people, 70 people. You know, we're working with uh, a number of the, the major Fortune 500 uh, brand owners. So you know, I mentioned some names already, but, but you know, folks like Unilever, Ralph Lauren, uh, Lululemon, Puma, uh, these kind of companies and and you know growth has been has been good. I mean, I expect our our monthly recurring revenue to grow north of fifty percent in uh, in twenty twenty. So it's it's progressing uh, progressing positively. You know, notwithstanding the uh, the uh, the challenges of of COVID. Absolutely. And as we're looking into the future, there's one question that I wanted to ask you here. Imagine that you go to sleep tonight. And you wake up in a world, let's say, five years later. It's a tremendous news, right? You've been able to catch up for all those sleepless, ni sleepless nights, no? <laughs> and uh, basically, you wake up in a world where the vision of everything is fully realized. What does that world look like? Well, uh, it's a world where uh, every every physical object around you is is an interface actually so you know by pointing your phone or whatever it is we call a phone 5 years from now at at anything you can access information about what it is but you know where it came from and you can access services and so on that might be associated with it i guess my my hypothesis is that the possession of physical goods will gradually become replaced with with physical goods being a service, just like you know, automobile ownership is being replaced with uh, with Uberization of of cars uh, these days, and so we'll see a lot more rental of, of of all sorts of physical types of things. And if you're running out of something, you can just ask it to reorder itself. That kind of an experience, right? And and every physical object being digitally uh, engageable like that is probably the type of world uh, that we'll see. That's pretty pretty cool. I mean, definitely a lot uh, going on in the in the space that you're in so so obviously one of the things that that i wanted to ask you here i mean the journey with everything you know has been remarkable but you know one one of the things that is true here is that timing is everything and i'm sure that a lot of people that are listening you know right now you know are probably like wondering about product market fit and and being at the right time in history and all of that stuff i guess say in your case when you guys got started was a little bit early Yes, I mean I think that we launched the company probably four years early, uh, relative to what we now know about the the market timing. And the big challenge for a business like everything is that we're providing a specific part, which is the cloud data intelligence and and data management capability. But for us to succeed, we needed uh, the cost of digital sensors or digital tags on everyday items to be low enough. We needed smartphones to be able to automatically scan and interact with products on a on a ubiquitous basis and you know apple uh, and google didn't upgrade the mobile operating system so that your camera could automatically scan qr codes they didn't do that until until 2018 right 
And so a bunch of the ecosystem elements were, were just not mature enough during the first few years of our, of, of our business. And, and so uh, obviously, you, you, know, you make a bet on timing when you start a, 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 a company, but you've really got to be quite careful about uh, tracking what those, those trigger points are and make sure that you can survive to the point that, that, that they actually mature. And I think we were lucky. We were we were good at raising capital. We we were able to build intellectual property value and so on during that uh, during that early that early time and and uh, able to find good pioneer customers. But you know, I always say that if you don't survive, then you're not present to play the game when the market really uh, accelerates. And and I think that's a very important phase, the early stage where you've got to survive and you've got to get to to the starting point, so to speak. And and then of course the whole thing shifts and it becomes a race to keep up with the uh, the acceleration of the opportunity. And that's certainly the the nature of the environment we're in now. Pretty cool. And obviously, uh, as we're talking about here about lessons uh, and, and things that perhaps you, you learn along the way, there's one question that I uh, really enjoy asking the guests that come on the show, and that is, if you had the opportunity, Nial, of, of going back in time, and maybe we go back to the 90s where you really started getting involved with, with launching companies, uh, if you had the opportunity to have a chat with your younger self, with that younger Nial, before launching, you know, that first business, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to your younger self and why, given what you know now? <laughs> well, that's a good question. I, I think I would tell myself to stop believing my own bullshit um, <laughs> and, uh, and sort of look really carefully at the, at, at the people that um, I, I'm putting around me because you know, building a great team is what's going to make me uh, make me successful, and it, it took me too long to realize that. So, uh, yeah, that's the advice I give myself. That's fantastic. Well, Neil, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? I'm on Twitter at Niall Tweet. I'm on email at Niall at everything dot com. So easily, easily just get a hold of me or on LinkedIn. Amazing. Well, Neil, thank you so much for being on the Deal Maker Show today. Alexander, thank you. It's, uh, it's awesome you're doing this. So, a uh, uh, pleasure. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So, also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.